Good evening. Good evening. Hello. Amazing. We're alive and well. My name is Chris, if we haven't met yet. I am the kids and youth pastor here at Lagan Valley Vineyard. And uh, I am so glad you made it out tonight. You are officially probably the most in love with Jesus people in Lisbon because I would definitely be out there if I wasn't obliged to be here right now. But um, you are here nonetheless, and we love that. Um, just a little bit of an uh, update for those that were here at our last Jericho. My shoes have not turned up. So it's just, I guess, it's just part of my story now, you know, so we'll, we'll, we'll move on. Um, but also, secondly, is that I actually don't feel 100% right now. Um, I tried to be a morning person this morning. I woke up at 5 and had, like, breakfast and then was, like, going to, like, read my Bible and pray and did all that stuff. And I felt amazing. And, like, that's, I'm super spiritual. I know. It's, I'm a pastor. It's, it's what I do. And uh, I was joking. But... Nine o'clock came around. I felt amazing. First church service came around, 9.45. I was like, this is class. I feel amazing. Did culture and info. Got off stage. I was like, I feel terrible. This is the worst I've ever felt in my life. Morning people who tell you, be a morning person. You'll feel amazing for the rest of the day. That is not true. And uh, I feel a little bit not myself. So if you're like, I just say that because like, well, Chris seems like a little bit less excited tonight. That's not the case. I am so excited to be here, even though that weather's outside. And um, we're going to push through and we're going to have a great night. He's up for it? Amazing. All right, well, I want to start by telling you guys a bit of a story. Before I do, I'm going to give you a bit of a preface around it. So this story illustrates my point to the T. It is a great story. There's one issue with the story in that it illustrates me in a light that perhaps is irresponsible or perhaps like a little bit reckless with my choices. And I want you to know this happened over a year ago. And uh, it was before I was a youth pastor. When I became a youth pastor, I became a lot more responsible. If you're sitting here and you're like, Chris leads my kids and young people. Honestly, I've changed a lot. I came home to Lisburn, a lot more grounded. And we're going to go for the story anyway. But last year, I moved to Seattle for nine months. I went to be part of a leadership course and worked for a church out there. It was an amazing time, one of the best Uh, nine months of my life. Absolutely loved it. And when I left, a lot of my friends were like, oh, Chris, I'd love to come visit you. Like, Seattle, America, like, want to come and visit you. And I was like, that's amazing. You're welcome anytime. I have a spare bed in my room. Like, you can come out. And uh, no one really ever did apart from one person. And that was Connor Baird, my only true friend. Connor, the guitarist. What a guy who came out. It took a lot to persuade him to come out to America. I had an ambition with a trip to LA as well, but he managed to come around to it and he managed to come out and, and have a good time. So uh, when we were thinking about when he's going to come out, we decided that spring break and around Easter time, you get two weeks off. That's a great time to go out. We'll be able to travel down to LA, we'll have a bit of fun. We'll travel back out. We'll hang out in Seattle. You can meet some of my friends out there and you can, you can see the church and all that kind of stuff. And so that was great. And I had this great idea. I was like, Connor, instead of you flying to Seattle and then us going from Seattle to LA, why don't you just fly into LA? We'll meet you there and then we'll go back up with you to Seattle and you can hang out in Seattle. Like, it'll save you money. Great idea. It was like, yes, sounds amazing. Let's do it. So I had two friends of me who lived in America that wanted to go on this trip with me. They were two of my best friends there. We had planned this for a few months. We had it all ready. My friend had a car. He was like, instead of, this is like, this is whenever plane tickets were cheap. And we we're like, we should probably book a flight. And he was like, no, like, who remembers going on flights? And I was like, it's the whole point of getting somewhere. And he was like, let's drive down. And I was like, 
you want to drive from Seattle to LA. Now, a road trip for me is like Lisbon to Port Rush, and that's stretched. Like, I need to stop for snacks, I need to hydrate, I need, get, I need caffeinated. Like, that's a big stint. Seattle to LA is 17 hours if you do it straight. Like, it is not a short drive. And for a Northern Irish person, you could like drive from, I don't know, like the whole south to the whole north of Ireland and back again and still have like half a day left. Like, it's a long time to drive being a car. But they were like, no, like, it's the whole point of it, like, road trips, like, and so their Americanness like, convinced me this was a great idea. So I was like, okay, let's do it. So he had a car. It was going to be, like, we're just going to ship it in fuel. Might have been around the same price. That would be fine. The two guys who I was going with, a week before they got off on spring break, they went on a mission trip. So they were going on a mission trip, and they came back on the Saturday evening of the mission trip. On the Monday evening, Connor was flying into L.A. So we had to be in L.A. for Monday for Connor getting in. On the Wednesday, whilst they're on a mission trip, I get a phone call. My friend was like, here's a good idea. I'm going to drop my car in to get a little bit of service just before we drive 17 hours there and 17 hours the whole way back. It's probably a good idea. I was like, sounds smart, logical. Let's do it. He calls me on Wednesday and tells me that the mechanic who just looked at his car said, under no circumstances are you allowed to drive this vehicle ever again. And uh, I asked him, well, what does that mean? He's like, well, that means we have no way to get to LA. And I was like, well, that's a real problem. So... We started asking a few friends, like, hey, can we borrow your car? Like, because I don't know what way insurance works in America. It's different here, but apparently you can just drive each other's cars. It's fine. So we were asking around, trying to figure out if we could get a car. The travel's on, and we, no one would let us borrow their car. I don't know why you wouldn't let me borrow your car for 17 hours. Like, but no one would let me borrow their car. And I was sitting in my, um, in my room. I hadn't called Connor to let him know. He thought everything was fine. Like, driving to LA. He called me, he was like, you all good to pick me up? I was like, yeah, 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 just figuring out some small details, be fine. And I, to be honest, I was freaking out. I had no idea how to get there. And I was sitting in my apartment and I was like, I, I was just like, I was, I externally processed sometimes. So I was sitting at the table and I was like, I'm, I'm going to get to LA. I don't have a car. can't afford a plane ticket. It's far too expensive now. Like, what are we going to do? And uh, my friend who lived in my apartment with me was like, hey, I, you could you could borrow my fiance's car. And I was like, your fiance's car? And she's like, yeah, like she's this car, it's great. Like, I'm sure if you give her some money, like you could just drive her car, it'd be totally fine. And I was like, number one, you've never seen me drive a car before. Number two, I have never met your fiance ever. And number three, what sort of person just lends their car to three people to drive to LA and back, which is a 34 hour journey in total. And so I was like, well, maybe this is our only option. So we have a few conversations. And as it goes on, he starts to draw up some kind of guidelines around contract. This is where the mistake comes in. And uh, the contract is that we need to pay for four brand new tires on the car because it's not really to drive that far. We were like, fair enough. That's fine. Second is that we have to pay $500 in cash as a payment for the loan of the car. Fair enough and uh, everything's fine to go. And then the last day before we travel, which, and we kind of have no other option here, like we, we're taking this car, I'm not really up for it, but we're taking it, is that he brings out this waiver on his iPad, and he's like, oh, guys, I just need you all to sign this. And I was like, well, what is this? And he's like, this is a waiver to say, if you crash the car, you owe us up to the expense of $20,000. And I was like, <laughs> when are you gonna tell me about this, you know? <laughs> And I, I said to my three other friends who were riding back, they're like, yeah, it's fine. Like, just, I was like, if we crash this car, I have no way of paying this. Like, I don't have a job in America. Like, my only option is to flee the country. Like, I have 
no way to pay back this vehicle if we get it. But the excitement of it all, Connor's driving to LA, I'm like, let's just sign the waiver and go for it. So I signed the waiver, we all signed the waiver, and the three of us take off to go to LA. Now, these have just got in from mission trip at 5 p.m. They've been serving the last seven days abroad. They've just arrived in. They wash their clothes, load the car, and we're ready to leave at 7 p.m. Saturday night. They are literally falling asleep, <laughs> standing up at this point. And I'm starting to become more and more nervous. But to be fair, for the first hour of the journey, I was really excited. I was like, we're on a road trip. Like, it's so cool. Like, we're going to stop places and get food and hang out. And then uh, a few hours into it, some things started to happen. Uh, the first thing is that for the first four hours of the journey, I've seen four car accidents. And I'm beginning to think, Jesus, are you speaking to me? Because <laughs> I, don't what, I don't know what's going on here. Uh, and secondly, one thing I noticed is that when meals are in a car for a long period of time, certain smells start to happen in the car, and they're not okay. <laughs> and so I wasn't quite loving my life. And as we were driving more and more, we left at like 7 p.m. that night, and we were planning, like our aim was like, this is typical like guys' mentality. It's like, we'll just drive 17 hours straight, straight there, like no pause, stop to go to the bathroom, get a few snacks, just drive 17 hours straight, no break, we're going to do it. And we get about 10 hours in, we hit San Francisco, and we are all, like, I haven't slept a bit, because I realize that if this car crashes, like, I am done for. Like, these guys can figure it out, they got insurance and whatever else. Like, I'm not even driving the car. I must tell you this as I'm telling the story. My mother's in this room, and she does not know I made this life choice. <laughs> She's looking at me very intently right now, trying to figure out how this story ends. And I'm, I'm awake the whole time, so, like, for the first 10 hours, I haven't slept. I've drank about eight Red Bulls. I'm starting to see things that I've never seen before because I'm getting delirious. And we haven't slept at all. And we're like, we need to stop and sleep. And so we were like totally ready to stop and, and sleep at a, like a hotel, like we get cheap or even sleep in the car. And one of the guys who was driving, his mom called and was like, hey, like we can get you a free hotel in San Francisco. Like if you want to stop off. And I was like, yes, Jesus, you obviously have some kind of purpose for this trip. Otherwise, these things wouldn't have happened. And so we stop off San Francisco and eventually... Long story short, we make it down to LA and we pick up Connor. No worries. When we get to LA, we're there for seven days and we have a car. The person who we're staying with has a car, so we don't really have to use our car, which is a win because that means we have no risk of crashing it. So that's a good thing. And so seven days happen and we have Connor, so that's now four people in the car. And then my other friend who was in Seattle wanted to get in on the action, had severe FOMO, which is fear missed night. And so he flew down to LA. That's, that's what FOMO is, right? Just checking them with the kids, you know. And uh, my friend who flies in from Seattle wants to come back up with us in the car. We're like, that's totally fine, but you need to pay your way for the vehicle and for the gas and all that kind of stuff. I say gas because that's what they call it in America. And that's totally fine. Apart from the guy flown in, is literally like nearly seven foot tall. Like he like played college basketball. He's the tallest man I've ever seen in my life. I'm like, hey. And um, so we have five people on the way up, and I'm really conscious that. Like, this could really go south really fast. So I make the decision, I'm like, all right, guys, I can't drive the car. Neither can Connor. Not that I would trust him to drive it anyway. We're all going to drive up. I'm going to sit in the front seat, and I'm going to stay awake the whole time because we cannot crash this car. Like, we've made it this far. I'm not ruining my life. Like, I was getting really dramatic, you know, like, giving them teen talks and all in the car before we got in. Like, not today. <laughs> not crashing today. And... Uh, so we get in the car and we start to travel up and I need to tell you that uh, the experience of driving to LA is much more exciting than driving back from LA and the smell with five people in the car is much, 
much worse than three people in a car, um, but we managed to get up there. Connor sat in the middle seat and put his legs up on like the elbow rest and put a mask on and pretty much slept the whole 17 hours. Like didn't talk to anyone. Like my American friends were like, is he okay? And I was like, he's just Irish. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so we eventually, we're like, we're making it. We're about 14 hours into the trip. We have like another four or five to go because more weight takes a little bit longer. We're going uphill, I think. And uh, I don't know, right? It takes longer to get there, okay? <laughs> and um, we're about, like, we're, get, we're getting there, okay? So we're, we've made it up past San Francisco, and we're on the Oregon coast. So it goes Oregon coast, then Portland, and then Seattle, and we are free. We check in the car. I never have to stress about it at all. Like, I had sleepless nights, like, before we drove back, panicking, like, if we crash this car, I'm totally dead. And one of the guys in the car hadn't drove the whole way back up yet. He drove a lot on the way down, but hadn't drove the whole way back up yet. In fact, he slept for 10 hours um, on the way to that point, so he was well rested. And so I turned around and I was like, hey man, we're going to leave the names anonymous for this moment. And I was like, hey man, do you want to drive? These guys have been driving for a long time. I've been away for 12 hours. I haven't even been driving. I'm getting tired. Do you want to jump in and, and drive? And he's like, yeah, I suppose. I was like, you suppose? You've had more sleep than anyone at all. Get in the car and drive. And so he's like, okay. And uh, I then move out of the front seat because the guy who's like nearly seven feet tall needs more legroom, which is understandable, but I wasn't happy about it. But anyway, I give him the legroom because that's what Jesus would have done. And I sit in the back left-hand hand seat. They drive their left-handed side of dri- uh, cars. And I'm sitting beside Connor, who is still asleep, has been asleep for like 10 hours. <laughs> we're not sure what's happening there. And we're making our way up through the Oregon coast and we're all quiet. And suddenly I noticed the guy who's driving, his head starts to like, tip down a little bit, you know? And so we're in a three-lane motorway, right? And we're in the far right-hand side lane, coasting at like 70 miles per hour. And I noticed his head, and I'm like, hey, man, you okay? He's like, yeah, I'm great. I was like, all right, I'm just checking in, because, you know, that, this thing called a lane, you're supposed to stay in it. <laughs> so it'd be great if you could. And so I'm getting more anxious, so like 10 minutes goes by, he's fine, and then his head starts to go a little bit more. And so what he had done is he had a bracelet on and he tied the bracelet around the steering wheel. Don't ask me how, don't ask me why, like, but he tied the bracelet around the steering wheel. And this guy slept more than any of us, right? And out of nowhere, for 10 minutes later, his head just completely drops. Now everyone's asleep in the car, just me in the back left. His head drops and his arm drops like this. And we're going 70 miles per hour. Suddenly the car immediately turns to a 45 degree angle and there's a massive steel pillar. And what is beyond that steel pillar is a lot of ongoing traffic. And so I'm like, this is happening. <laughs> like, this is my worst nightmare. This is happening right now. And everyone else is asleep in the car. And so I do what is only logical in this moment. Now, in hindsight, I realized this was maybe not the best thing to do, but impulse kicked in. And I raced around and I screamed his name. And what I probably should have done was like race the steering wheel, but that's not what I did. I just hit him as hard as I could in the face, right around the side of the head. His head bounced off the side of the, of, of the car, came back around, he straightened back up, and everyone in the car woke up, started screaming, said words that they're not allowed to say, and definitely not allowed to say in church, and Connor was still asleep, and actually, this is the first time Connor's heard this story. <laughs> and so I'm sitting in the back of the car, I'm like, we almost died, like, I, like and I know I'm like, I, I'm, I exaggerate a little bit, I get a little animated sometimes, like, but I'm like, we almost like, we almost died. And I'm sitting in the back seat, and I'm like, I'm like, 
believe me, I've seen Polly McNaught whenever my room is untidy. You do not want to get her son in a car accident in America. That is not a good plan. That's not going to end well for you at all. And I'm like, we're all silent in the car. No one's speaking a word, okay? Like, no one is saying a word. Connor, still asleep. Other two guys aren't saying a word. And the guy he's driving just is like, nothing happened. <laughs> we're all good. And I'm sitting in the back like, are we not going to talk about what just happened? Like, we're not going to discuss, like, we almost died. Like, or more importantly, are we not going to discuss how I saved the day by slapping you in the face? But we don't say a word at all until about 45 minutes into it, the guy who's driving the car says, I think I should probably pull over and get a Red Bull. I'm feeling a bit tired. I'm like, really? <laughs> now you want to get a Red Bull? And uh, we stopped at the pedal station. I told him to get out of the car, and someone else got back into it, and I sat in the front seat. And we made it to Seattle. Car got checked in. I know, I'm really not a hero. It was a really bad decision. <laughs> Not encouraging this. <laughs> and we eventually made it home. What I want to talk about tonight, and if I had a title for it tonight, is live like it happened. Do you ever have those moments in life where something kind of really big happens? It's, and when I say something really big, like it's disruptive. Like it cuts into your present, what is happening in those sort of moments, and it is blunt, and it is abrupt, and it is right there, and it's happening. Do you ever have those moments where like it's, such a disruption that you're just like, I'm just going to pretend like that never happened. You ever have those moments? I had the other week. I was in the cinema, bought a Coke, left a drink of Coke. It wasn't Coke. It was the person next to me. It was Fanta. And uh, she looked at me, and I looked at her, and I just nodded. <laughs> and sent it back down. <laughs> and I was like, I'm just going to pretend like it didn't happen. <laughs> We're all good here. And then about... 30 minutes into, I was like, I'm going to go buy you a new family. That's, that's not okay. So I went and did that. But I think we all have these moments sometimes where they're quite significant. They're quite abrupt. They're quite in your face. And we maybe don't realize like it's properly happened. We're not going to live like it happened. We're going to push it. We're going to suppress it. We're going to ignore it. And we're just going to try to get on with our lives like that never happened. And the book of Colossians, Paul is writing to the, the church in, in Colossians, in Colossae. And he's writing a really interesting letter. The book of Colossians is four chapters long. You can read it in around 20 minutes. I highly advise that you read it. Uh, Colossae is Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and he's addressing Greek converts that are living in a pagan culture. These are individuals who have actually received Christ, believe in him, but the kind of the issue around it is that they're not really living like it's happened. There's no real evidence that they're living like they've received Jesus. In fact, if you look at the context, they've actually also been baptized. And their attitude is that, well, Jesus is good, and we kind of believe he existed, but we're going to give it this kind of makeover. We're going to add things to it. We're going to adapt things to it. We're going to shape it to how we want to do it. We'll bring a little bit of our political stance into it, we'll bring a little bit of pagan culture into it, we'll bring even some angel worship into it, we'll add all these kind of things, because Jesus might have been a good idea, but I don't know if he's the whole package. And what has happened is that they're swaying away from the relationship that they once knew they had with Jesus, and they're now viewing that as an arrangement. It's transactional. They've received something, and now they're just kind of adding things into it. And so if you want to turn your Bibles to Colossians 2, and we're going to start reading um, from verse 6. Um, I'm going to read from the NIV version. If you have your Bibles, why don't you flick on over? And so Colossians 2, 
verses 6. Paul writes, So then, just as you've received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened by the faith as you were taught, and overflowing in thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow or deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and elemental forces of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all of the fullness of the deity lives in bodily forms, and in Christ, you've been brought to that fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you're also circumcised, not with a circumcision, not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in this uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having cancelled out the charge of legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken away, nailed it to the cross, and disarmed the powers and authorities. He has made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over the cross. There's, There's a pattern in this passage of Scripture. Verse 5 and 9, Paul's bringing up this kind of healthy reminder, like, you remember that time you received Jesus? You remember everything that came with him? Well, I want to, re- I kind of, re- you're not really living that way. And I kind of want to bring a bit of a healthy reminder to that. And then if you go down um, to verse 9 until 13, you start to read about how they haven't quite grasped what Jesus has done for them and how they're now engaging in these activities that they never should be engaging in. In fact, they're going back to their old ways, they're reverting back to what it was like before Jesus and trying to add these things around in some kind of way to obtain spiritual fullness. And in verse 13, we read the reminder, that, like this is what happened. In verse 13, he starts to explain, this is what happened. Why are you not living this way? Like, do you understand how significant this is and are you going to live that way? Tonight, I want to focus on the first uh, four verses, verses five to nine. I'm not going to talk about circumcision because that makes me wildly uncomfortable. And so we're going to move on swiftly. Um, and uh, verses 12 to 14 are incorporated around 5 to 9. It helps us unpack what is happening in that moment and understand better what he's trying to allow them to remember. Paul is writing in this letter to see, say that Jesus is more than enough. He's not just some hyper-moral guy. He's not just some good living or suggestive way to live, but he is who he says he is. Paul, uh, Paul's story in itself illustrates this. What's interesting is that Paul has never visited the church in Colossians. He also never planted the church in Colossians. But what's interesting about Paul is that Paul was the worst of the worst. He literally went day by day murdering Christians until he met Jesus himself, was rapidly turned around with one encounter. He started to live like that happened and became one of the biggest missionaries of all time. And maybe perhaps why Paul's writing to this letter isn't because nothing notoriously bad is happening, but part of a result of understanding what Jesus has done and living like that happened has a little bit of a resounding feedback starts to feed back to Paul. Maybe Paul's actually thinking, well, I haven't actually heard much about these guys. I remember we should check in with them just to remind them of what they're living. Earlier in in chapter 1, Paul says um, that Jesus is the son of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. That's reiterating the words of Jesus in the Gospel of John when he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's trying to reiterate who this person Jesus is. He's trying to say that 
Jesus plus nothing literally equals everything. You don't have to add to it or subtract to it. You don't have to try to make your own way around it. He's merely saying that he is more than enough, and he's not a suggested idea for living your life. He is where the fullness of life is found. I'm pretty sure if I gave you a million pounds, that would disrupt your life. In a good way, that would disrupt your life. If that would not disrupt your life, you have a lot of money. And we can talk after. But if something that significant happens, it disrupts your life. In verse 6, I want to read it again. It says, So then, just as you have received Christ as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing in thankfulness. Eugene Peterson, the message, words it this way. My counsel for you is simple and straightforward. I love that simple and straightforward because I don't understand complicated things. Just go ahead with what you've been given. You've received Christ Jesus, the master. Now live him. Not live like him. Now live him. Deeply rooted in him. Constructed upon him. You know your way around the faith. Now do what you've been taught. Schools out. Quit studying the subject and start living it. And let your living spill out into thankfulness. There are two two major metaphors that I want to really teach into tonight. And that's the idea of being rooted and built up. Rooted and built up. Rooted, interesting in this passage, Paul's addressing them in, in past tense. He's saying you have been rooted. That's past that something that's already happened. And he's also saying that you've received, that is past tense, that is something that they have already been given. He's not writing to say, you need to take this for the first time, they have received something already. He's referring to them in the past tense. They have already received Christ Jesus. They've already, in fact, been baptized by him as well. But that's not Paul's concern. Paul's concern is that they're still searching for spiritual perfection. And they're trying to do things that get themselves closer to God. And they're striving to attain it. And they're trying to earn it. See, what's interesting is that we, you hear this all the time, is that I have my truth, you have your truth, like this is truth, all this kind of stuff. Truth is transcendent. Truth was before us and it will go beyond us. Truth is not an opinion. It's not a stance. It says in the scriptures, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so Jesus is saying, and what Paul's writing is that, This is not a suggestive pattern. This isn't like, here's a model for you just to go live and then you can add things in, take things out, like figure out what you want to do. And he's saying, if you want to live true, if you want to understand the truth, is that he's saying, I am the truth. I am the full package. You don't need to add anything more to this. You don't need to try to subtract anything away from this. Grasp my fullness. Grasp what I have done. Stop trying to earn it by playing games and figure it out. Understand that I've already done that. They have already received what they have. It says in verse 11 to 15, it says that entering into the fullness is not something you figure out or achieve. It's not a matter of being circumcised or a long list of laws. You are already in. You are insiders. This is, in essence, the nature of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And if you were to boil that down, Corinthians, it says that he that knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. 
He that knew no sin was Jesus, became sin, which is carrying all of our sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. That word righteousness means right standing before him. That means that he was perfect. He had no blemish. He had done no act. He had done no wrong. And what Corinthians says is that, in essence, Jesus took all of our bad and in exchange gave us, who were all bad, all of his good. And so our Father in heaven looks upon us and doesn't see our mistakes or our shortcomings or our past, but sees us perfect and present before him. He doesn't see the mistakes. He sees what Jesus has done. Where there was no way, he made a way. It's the mere bottom line of the gospel. This was nothing about what we could do or what we could try to get into shape. It was not about trying to set up structures or laws or systems, about trying to attain that spiritual fullness that they were reaching. Not the spiritual level they were trying to attain. They were trying to attain friendship with God. To be so perfect that to have everything in the same box that they would appear that they've got all together, they could actually be friends with God. They could actually talk to him and know him. You see, being rooted is understanding that we have already received it and we merely have to hold our hands open wide and say, yes, we can't make sense of it, so we probably shouldn't try. It is the greatest gift that we will ever receive. It completely shifts the trajectory of our lives. When we live like it happened, it changes our lives. It's impossible to understand what Jesus has done for us and then for us to live in a totally different nature, not understanding the fullness of the reality of what he has done. And when he talks about being rooted, what he's talking about is he's saying there's been a status change. You're no longer a stranger, but you're a friend. You're no longer an outsider, but you're on the inside. You're no longer my enemy, but you're my closest friend. It was a direct status change. What does it look like to be rooted in God? It looks like having a relationship with him. Looks like understanding that he changed the status and we can't ever change that. If we did nothing to change that, then we can't do anything to disqualify ourselves from that. We never qualified ourselves in the first place, so we can't do anything that can disqualify ourselves from that. Have you ever noticed how friends stop being friends? You, you stop talking. And suddenly time goes on and time goes on and time goes on. I guarantee you, your closest friends may not be quantity, but may certainly be quality. You have a lot of conversation around. You have a lot of great conversation around. You have conversation that carries weight. You talk about things that are honest. You talk about things that are real and vulnerable. You undo yourself before them, and you do life together. To be rooted is to understand that Jesus is not just some lofty idea. What Paul is writing to say is that he is closer than a brother near you every step of the way. The reality is that he is totally present. When we worship and we sometimes feel like God's coming closer, the reality is that he's more close than we can ever realize. We're just becoming more aware of it as we worship. He is there and he is present and he is moving. And so to be rooted and to understand it is to understand that we are given relationship and friendship with God day in, day out. He wants to hear what you have to say. He wants to hear your worst moments and your best moments. He wants to hear your dreams and your ambitions. He wants to hear your lowest and your brightest. He wants to journey through every moment of that because he made a way for that to be possible. If we want to live like it happened, then we begin to make ourselves present before Jesus. We begin to talk to him. We begin to engage with 
him. That's what it looks like to live like it happened. Secondly, I want to look at the, the next part of it, which is being built up. That it's when from something that has actually happened to something that is happening now. You see, before we're built up, it's important, and this is, you don't need a great figure, right? you need a good foundation to build something strong and sturdy. You need something that is strong underneath you before you start to build strong upwards. And so he's saying, your friendship with Jesus is core. Your relationship with Jesus, your understanding his nearness, your understanding what has been made available to you in that is important. But more so than that, Paul is writing to say that he wants to break down the ideas and the concepts that have been built around this. You see, firstly, we did nothing to earn this. Grace is a gift that we did not earn. We were given it. And so he's saying that this This gift, we can't get caught up trying to earn it through do's and don'ts. We understand that when Jesus said it was done, it was done. And it is given to us and we receive what that is. And so being rooted is completely opposed to trying to earn relationship with God. We can't earn it. We can't make away with it. But secondly, part of being built up, this is a quote from Dallas Willard. He says, grace is not opposed to effort but it is opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. Grace, you know, doesn't just have to do with the forgiveness of sins alone. See, grace is not only a gift that liberates us from our past, brings us closer in the relationship with God, but it is something that releases us into the future. In the message 6 and 8, it says, you've received Christ Jesus, the master, now live him, deeply rooted in him as you were constructed upon him. You know your way around the faith. Now do as you've been taught. Schools out. Quit studying and start living it. And let your life spill over in thankfulness. Start living it. A few weeks ago, Andy posed the question, what's better than God in flesh? And he suggested, say, God in all flesh. What does it look like to realize that it has happened, but also to realize that it is also continuously still happening? That yes, we are rooted, but we're also built up. What does it look like to ditch the idea of trying to earn relationship with Jesus and trying to earn some kind of status or perfection, but actually to put effort into what it looks like to follow Jesus in our everyday lives? There's a pastor in America who talks about this idea of, of, of apprenticeship to Jesus. And so like if you're an electrician and you're an apprentice, you will go and you will learn from the electrician. You will learn to understand what he's doing, how he does it. And slowly but surely, he starts to give you more and more work. You start to become more familiar with it. You get better and better. And suddenly you become an electrician. The, the idea of apprenticeship is that you come under them and you learn how they do it. And you begin to do the things that they do as well. If the band want to come up, that would be great. Our relationship to Jesus and part of being built up is understanding like it's, it's just like being an electrician and an apprentice to him only we are the apprentice to Jesus and the family business is not wiring electric in the houses but it's bringing hope to all humanity and bringing the life of Jesus that carries solutions to every place and every part of that and as Jesus continues to do that we get to join in with him as he, he, he does it and also what's really important as we understand is that well, that sounds all well and good. I understand that Jesus is my friend. I understand that it's happened and I also want to live like it's happening, but how do I do that? Truth is that by putting 
a 100 kilogram barbell, you can tell I don't go to the gym, um, on the ground, and you tell me to lift it, and you, tell me, you, you say, just try to lift it, I will not be able to do that. In fact, I may tell you to clear off. And if I try tomorrow to do that, I'm not going to be able to do it. If I try the day after to do that, I'm not going to be able to do it either. If I try 100 times after, the chances are I'm never going to be able to do that. If I just go up to 100 kilograms and try to squat that, I don't know if that's a heavy squat or not, but 100 sounds big, so. (laughs) But if we train to do it, it'll look different. If we train to do it, it might look like just lifting the bar and squatting a few times with the bar. I'm not going to squat either because I'm wearing really tight jeans. <laughs> but we'll gradually add weight. And suddenly what was difficult becomes easy. Suddenly what was impossible becomes actually more and more possible. And it might take a month, it might take two months, it might take six months. Honestly, I have no idea how long it takes to lift 100 kilograms. But it might take time. But if we adopt an attitude of training and not trying, of applying effort to that, then eventually we're going to be able to lift that. Well, how do I train? In the first part, it talks about being rooted in God. See, part of what being rooted in God is that it reveals his heart. It reveals how much he loves us. Being built up then reveals to us how we're to go and to do that. Let me explain. When you spend time with someone, and I, I love doing this, you give me five minutes with you, I'll probably ask you a few questions, and probably inside those five minutes, I'll have some kind of idea about what you're excited about, passionate about, or what you love. You're thinking here, well, I know that's happened, and I want to begin to live like it's happening. I want to try to train instead of try. I want to apply effort instead of trying to earn this. I want to see Jesus come to every person, every part of this city. How, well, how do I know where to start? Maybe the best place to start is where we're rooted. Maybe we should start talking to Jesus more. Because I'm pretty sure when we begin to talk to him more, what we begin to realize is his heart. What we begin to realize is what he's passionate about. What we begin to realize is what he adores and what he loves and what he treasures. Oh, social justice? I understand. I understand how you love that. Politics, education. You start to understand how Jesus loves that. And know what communication does, know what talking to him does, know what being rooted in him does. It starts to fire up something inside us. It starts to give us an understanding about what he's passionate. Where do I go? How do I engage with that? Where do I approach that? You see, I think there's two things in play with these metaphors. First is that Jesus is a companion. He's closer than a brother. He's no longer a stranger. But secondly, he is also our master, as the scripture says tell us that we are to come under him submit to him be obedient to him to learn from him and to begin to do the things that he does we are continue to live not just that it happened not just the grace that frees us from our past or our sin or our mistakes or reputation but releases us into our future and what he has for us companionship and apprenticeship being rooted and being built up coming close and effort seems like a bit of a strange word and I kind of get that 
I want to leave this with you. I feel like this, this, this passage in Matthew actually encapsulates everything that what I'm trying to say and, and communicate. In Matthew 11, verse 28, in the message, Eugene Peterson words it this way. He says, Are you tired, worn out, burned out in religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me, work with me, watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-lifting upon you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn how to freely live lightly. Are you tired, worn out, burned out in religion? Are you trying to figure it out? Are you trying to add more things to it? Are you trying to play plus and subtract? Are you trying to attain something that actually we can never earn? Come to me. Get away with me, and you'll recover your life. Understand the closeness in which he has made available to you. And then he says this, which is beautiful. Walk with me, work with me, watch how I do. Walk with me, work with me, watch how I do. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I'm going to pray a prayer tomorrow morning. Say, God, I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to work with you. I'm going to watch how you do it. I want to be more aware of your goodness. I want to be aware of what you do. And I want to join in with that. I want to talk to you. I want to hear what's close to your heart. I want to hear what makes your heart beat. I want to hear what you long to see happen. And then I want to, I want to walk with you in those moments. I want to be aware that you're with me by my side. My master teaching me as I go. My, the apprentice in who I am. And I want to begin to work with you more and more. I, begin to, I want to see how you do it. I want to join in. I want to celebrate those wins and I want to always refer back to being rooted. Walk with me, work with me. Watch how I do. Tonight I want to create a bit of a moment and then after we're going to pray for some of you guys. But um, if you you would stand, we're going to do something a little bit different tonight. Tonight we're we're going to sing a song. Uh, Jim's going to lead us. And I just want to create a moment where we can once again reflect on the reality is that it has happened. That he has crossed the divide. That he has made available to us friendship and companionship. And right now in this moment, in a room in Lisbon and Altona State, that he is closer than we could ever imagine. And I want to pray that our awareness to him being here would increase more and more. Their awareness of how he's moving and how he's speaking, how he loves us and how he's released us into the future that he has for us.